Psalm 16 says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after God shall, after another God, shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One See corruption. You make me known, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Carmen, for reading that so excellently this morning. What a wonderful piece of Scripture. I, I chose that this morning to, uh, to have it be our Scripture reading for reasons I trust will make sense over the next uh, hour and a half or so. I say hour and a half because you got an extra hour today, and I intend to use it. You know, that's, you thought that was a free bonus. Uh, I know that those jokes always make you nervous, right? Like you're not sure, is, it, is he serious? Is, he, is this really going to happen? It's not. That was a joke. So you can relax. Anyhow, I love this psalm in the context of what we're talking about today, specifically because this psalm was written by David when he was going through a difficult time. And instead, he states so clearly in the first part of this psalm, the things that he could do, the direction he could turn in the face of difficulty. And then he declares what he is going to do. He could turn to false gods. He could turn down the wrong track in the face of difficulty, but he declares clearly his belief in God, his trust in God, his intention to rely on God and keep the Lord set before him. Keep that in mind as we go through this morning. Before we dive into it, though, I wanted to share with you something, uh, building on something that Greg had said just a few moments ago about uh, our church, our facilities. Uh, we have someone in our church who uh, wrote an, a, a letter to our elder team a couple of weeks ago saying that uh, knowing that we are pursuing uh, a f building a fund to pursue a facility for our church, a permanent home, uh, this individual said that between now and the end of the year, they would give as much as $50,000 towards this fund if other people give it. So they'll match it. In other words, they'll match up to $50,000 if we as a congregation will contribute specifically to this new facility fund between now and the end of the year. If we raise as much as $50,000, this individual will give 50000 If we raise 30000 this individual will give 30000 That's how matching funds work, right? So just to put that in your minds, uh, we don't have a specific place right now, but you know what? Uh, we've been setting aside money faithfully, and, and people have been giving money specifically for this. And looking at the room this morning, you know, we're not quite really in the season yet, and we're filling up, yeah. and uh, we, we need this. But we've been able to set aside just over a million dollars so far for this fund. I think that's excellent. And that's so that when the right opportunity comes up, we won't be standing here flat-footed and unable to, uh, to make a move. So God has helped us to prepare. 
and we're thankful for this individual's offer of a $50,000 match as we give that between now and the end of the year. So just bear that in mind. Now let's get back to things that matter even more. We, we go through good times in our life, uh, good days, uh, good seasons. Sometimes they stack up and we have several good months or a couple of good years. And then the opposite happens sometimes too, doesn't it? We, we have some bad days bad week. Sometimes it, it builds up and we end up with a streak of, of difficulty uh, that can last for an extended period of time. And I think everyone in the room who's old enough to have experienced anything for a number of years knows what I'm talking about. You've, you've been through that. It's vital that in the face of good times or in the face of bad times, we have proper and accurate theology to undergird our beliefs and our actions. And that's so vital because we very easily start to spin off in our thinking into kind of making up what God is really like or what he seems to be like, rather than anchoring that on what the Bible teaches us about the one true God. And we end up relying on a God that we've made up as our own invention, is not real, about how God acts in good times or how God acts when we're going through bad times, and we use these thoughts to sometimes comfort ourselves or to seek direction, it's vital that we have accurate theology and accurate understanding of who God is and how he deals with his people in good times and bad times so that we can be accurate in our worship of him. We find Paul in Acts 25 this morning in the middle of a very difficult time. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. This, this is a, a kind of a tough uh, spot to preach through, and Greg alluded to this last week at the beginning of his sermon. Um, maybe the week before, maybe both times, I don't know. We've been talking about, this is the point. We, we've been with Paul in prison since chapter 21 when he was arrested. We're in chapter 25 now, and what's been happening is just an ongoing series of hearings and tribunals and all this stuff, and it's basically the same story over and over again, sometimes in front of the same people, sometimes in front of different officials, but the story's pretty much the same. So it's, it's kind of hard to dig into this and say, okay, here's, here's what we're going to preach from chapter 25 this morning. And uh, so I, I've spent a lot of time on that in the last couple of weeks, and, and I believe that, uh, that there's something here that, that, uh, that we can see that's going to be very beneficial to us. But to grasp it, we have to understand what's going on with Paul. We look back at chapter 21 when he's arrested. Now in chapter 25, he's still in this cycle of endless hearings and, and trials. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start reading uh, in a minute in chapter 25, but before that, I want to give you just sort of a quick verbal summary of what's happening in the first section of this chapter so we don't end up having to read through this entire chapter line by line. But we find last week, remember, uh, if you were here or if you listened online, uh, Pastor Greg talked about Felix, who was the governor, and uh, talked a little bit about how he was a corrupt governor and Paul was, was uh, being tried before him. And uh, Felix kept calling for Paul to talk to him, and it makes it clear in the text that Felix really wanted to have some kind of a bribe from Paul. So you remember all of that. So at the beginning of chapter 25, we find that Felix has been replaced by a new governor. His name is Festus. I really wish that their names were more different than they are because I keep getting confused between Felix and Festus. If I say the wrong name this morning, forgive me. It's not my fault. It's the fault of whoever appointed two governors in a row with names that were so similar. But this guy's Festus. He didn't seem to be as corrupt as Felix. Uh, and, and also, remember, the Roman system of government was very formal. It was very organized. It wasn't some kind of a banana republic. This, this guy, when he became governor, we can be certain that he took his responsibilities seriously and figured out what was going on in the land, had all those briefings of the transition of power. Okay, so... Uh, he would have known that this guy Paul was in prison. He would have, I'm sure, studied some of the documents, that the record of Paul's trials, who he was, what he was there for, and all of that. So now Festus is the governor. He went up to Jerusalem shortly after he was installed as governor. And uh, who's in Jerusalem? Of course, the chief priests and all of their attorneys and the people that, uh, that uh, Pastor Greg talked about last week. And so these chief priests come to the new governor, Festus, feeling like they've, they've got a new guy to work now. And so they'd say to Festus, you know, it would be cool is if you would get Paul, who's in prison in Caesarea, which is down on the Sea of Galilee, 
Herod's castle, Herod Agrippa's castle down there, where Paul was in prison, bring him up to Jerusalem so we can uh, try him here. You know what they were wanting to do, right? Because uh, they, they had this pact that they had made that they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. And they had kept having this plan that they, they, tried, they tried it over and over again and it never worked. These guys needed to hire a consultant or somebody to help them come up with a better plan because this one wasn't going to happen. And so they wanted him to bring Paul up to Jerusalem so that they could ambush him on the way and kill him. I mean, these guys, it's been, it's been over two years since they took that pact. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who uh, is hangry. <laughs> these guys were hangry after two years. Of, they probably did sneak a little uh, Twinkie or something from time to time when no one else was looking because they're still alive. But they had this pact that they wouldn't eat or drink until Paul was dead. Two years later, Paul's still alive. They're feeling desperate, but Festus is smart enough to know what they're up to, and uh, he does not fall for it. Instead, he invites them, why don't you guys come down to Caesarea? I got this great place down there. It's right on the sea. You're going to love it. We can hang out down there and talk to Paul all day if you like. And so they brought... He, he, they came down there, and uh, when they were all gathered in Caesarea, they held a tribunal, a formal hearing, called Paul out. The chief priests and their experts came and made all of their accusations, the same ones that we heard last week and we heard the week before, ever since uh, back in chapter 21 when Paul was arrested, and uh, had the same response. Festus could see quickly that this is just some internal religious uh, argument that really had nothing to do with the Roman government, and uh, he, he didn't know exactly how to handle this. So he gives Paul a choice. Seeing that Paul is innocent of anything that was serious according to the Roman government, he says, Paul, I'll give you a choice. You can go with these guys back to Jerusalem and let them try you. You know, if that's really what you want to do, I think we all know how that's going to end or else uh, we can do a little hearing right here, and I will try you myself. Well, Paul, as a Roman citizen, decided to take a third option, which he had the right to do because of his Roman citizenship, and that is to appeal to a higher court, appeal to Rome, appeal to Caesar. And so Paul says to Festus, I want to appeal to Caesar. This is important because you can imagine, as a Roman citizen who's living in Israel and, uh, and gets arrested for some religious violation in the Hebrew religion, as a Roman citizen, the Roman government doesn't really care about the Old Testament laws of the Hebrew religion. Of course, the Jews, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they cared very deeply about that, and really they should because this was their religious system from the Old Testament. But the Roman citizens were not required to live by the Hebrew religious rules, and so the Roman governor could not allow a Roman citizen to be imprisoned and eventually executed because of his violation of Hebrew religious law, right? That just makes sense when you think about it. And so Paul had the right to say, no, I really don't want either one of these options. I'm kind of in a mess down here in Caesarea, and so I appeal to Rome, take me to Caesar, and let's get this thing uh, taken care of. And Festus says, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. I don't know if you've ever been involved in an extended court case. I gratefully never have but I sure have been around some. And when a court case is given an appeal to the higher court, that is usually a good thing on behalf of the defendant if they're being attacked. So Paul won his appeal. His appeal was granted. Now he's no longer stuck here. His appeal is granted to the higher court. So that's kind of the backstory. Let's pick it up in verse 13. I'm going to read through this pretty quickly. So hang with me and, uh, and try and, and pay attention while I cover these facts. There are some interesting things we see here, starting in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. I'm going to pause there for a minute to explain Agrippa. Uh, Agrippa was the, uh, Herod Agrippa II is the king here, and Bernice, who is his wife, is his sister. So, you know, this, just, you know, in case you didn't know, this ain't right. Uh, so, uh, he, he, Bernice had been married to two other men, now was not formally married to her brother, but acting as his queen, and they were together, and it was, uh, everybody knew this is, this is sick and, and wrong. Okay, so that's who we're talking about here. Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, greeted Festus. As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. So this is Festus talking. 
I answered them, it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. On the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no change in his case. They brought, sorry, when the accuser stood, they brought no charge in his case such, of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about certain, a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss for how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them, but when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa, you know, the cool guy married to his sister, said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he'd done nothing deserving death, and he himself appealed to the emperor. I decided to go ahead and send him. But here's, here's the problem Festus finds himself in, and you'll understand this. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Well, that would be unreasonable, but I think Festus was worried more about what would seem unreasonable to Nero in Rome, like this governor out there in Caesarea sent me this prisoner, and I've got to take my time, Nero, to try this guy, and the charges make no sense. Like, I think uh, Nero would be a little bit upset at Festus for sending this stupid case to him in Rome, right? So that's, what's, that's what Festus is worried about. So he, I think he kind of maybe tricks Agrippa, who's so full of himself that he doesn't see it, and he's proud to be the one who gets to make this decision. So Festus is getting Agrippa to interview Paul to figure out what are the charges that I'm going to attach to him that will make sense to Nero when I send him to Rome. That all make sense? All right. Well, that's the end of chapter 25. You know, what, what do you preach from that? And I, I spent a, a bit of time contemplating that question. What do you preach from that? Then I went back to the end of chapter 24, the last uh, verse. This is where Craig ended with us last week. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius and Fest, Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And I was reminded of that, and it really hit me. This guy has been sitting in prison for two years, and, and nothing happened. Like, there's no story. It's one sentence. One sentence in the narrative in the book of Acts is just telling us that Paul was rotting in prison for two years, maybe worse than rotting in prison, because it says in the previous verse that, that Felix would call for him frequently to talk to him, but I don't think Paul enjoyed those conversations based on this. Last time I spoke here at Vero Bible Fellowship, uh, we were in the, I forget what chapter it was, maybe chapter 15, where Paul was in Athens, and he was there, and the, you know, Athens had these people, these philosophers who loved to discuss philosophy, and they wanted to engage Paul in endless cyclical conversations about philosophy, and Paul was not the least bit interested. Paul preached the gospel to them and left, because this was not Paul's style. Okay, so if that's not Paul's style, he's the kind of guy who wants to preach the gospel, call for the question, and move on to the next group, and he's stuck here for two years in prison and every few days or however often it was, the Bible doesn't tell us, frequently, Felix, this corrupt governor who wanted a bribe, would call for him to have these ongoing conversations about whatever. It had to drive Paul crazy. And that's what he was stuck in for two years. So during those two years, what, what would Paul have been thinking about? 
Those two years stuck in prison, this is a man of action. This is a guy who all through the book of Acts, we've seen his story that he would go on these journeys and go from one town to the next, and sometimes he'd be arrested, sometimes he'd be beaten. He had all these things that were happening, but his life was exciting, and he was seeing people come to faith in Christ, and all this action was happening, and now two years just sitting in prison. What would he be thinking about during those two years? And as I'm contemplating, I'm I'm thinking, if I can figure out what Paul was going through during those two years, maybe there's something to preach on chapter 25 in that. And so I had this brilliant idea. I mean, I was so smart this morning, not this morning, but this morning, the morning I was thinking of this, like, I know what I can do. I can figure out of the epistles, the letters that we have in the New Testament that Paul wrote, which ones did he write during this two-year period, and then I can read those and study those. There's some great stuff in these epistles. I love teaching from the epistles. If I can figure out which ones he wrote during this two years, and I can go and rely on some of that to pull material out about, oh, here's what was going on during these two years when Paul was in prison in Caesarea. But you know, you know which ones he wrote during these two years? None. Not a single one. And I'm like, well, that, that was smart. You know, I wish Paul would have uh, complied with that and done a little work while he was in prison those two years. So then I'm back to this. What would this guy have been, th- what would you be thinking? You know, here, two years, cooling your heels when you're used to being out on the front of the action, making a difference in people's lives and serving God in, a, in his kingdom in a way that's tangible and you can see the results and now you're stuck in prison. I, I, this is speculation. And let me, let me tell you, Anytime someone's teaching you the Word of God and you sense that there's speculation, beware. Your ears should perk up. You should pay special attention because people speculate things, embellish the text, and make up stories that may or may not be true. That's not scriptural. We don't build theology on that. But there's still maybe a role for that in helping to understand some of what's going on. I I think that probably uh, it's not out of the question that during these two years, Paul had some questions about why did God park him in prison? Like, what, what would it be natural for him to think? Did I do something wrong? Did, did I miss God's will somewhere? Was there some time when God was directing me and I took the wrong turn, I didn't get the message and, and I didn't do the right thing? Or did I displease God in some way and he's disciplining me and he's got me in prison until I can face up to my own sin and confess it and make things right with God and then he'll put me back on the right track? Those are the things we would think, right? What, what about this guy who before his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, his role was trying to track down Christians and stomp this out, imprison them, see that they were executed. I bet he had this question, like, maybe God can't really use me anymore. Maybe I've kind of reached the end of the path of how God could use me because, yes, he's forgiven me and I'm covered by the grace of God, but still, you know, I have this terrible past, these things I used to do, and maybe I'm just not the right guy to be doing this ministry. He had to have these questions. There's even scriptural foundation for that. Remember David? David being a man of war, and when, when God wanted to build a temple, it wasn't David's job because of his past. He was a man of war, and God wanted the temple to be built by Solomon, who was a man of peace. Paul would have known these scriptures, these facts. He had to have these questions. What questions would you have? What questions do you have? When you're facing those difficulties and, and trying to figure out what, what exactly is God doing in my life right now? What, why are things not going better? Did I do something wrong? Did I displease God? Did I miss his direction somewhere? What's going on? We have those questions. And so I wanted to go back to this this morning and take a look at some of those questions that Paul would have had or that we certainly have and uh, see what we can learn. We are such cause and effect people by our culture. I think it's partly an American thing, but it's probably part of the human condition. We, we understand risk and reward. We understand you do the crime, you do the time. These are the things that make sense to us, right? We, we understand if you work hard and you're diligent, then you're likely to succeed. Or if you play around and you're negligent, you're likely to fail. Like these are principles of our lives, are they not? Like our mamas and daddies taught us these things, and if they didn't, then we learned them in the school of hard knocks. And we're conditioned to think this way, and so it's natural for us when we run into a hard time to apply these cultural things to God and say, okay, did I, was I not diligent enough? Did I study the scriptures enough? 
but the gospel's not that way. On the other hand, this is not completely contrary to Scripture. The Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 6 and verses 7 and 8, a couple of verses that we ought to have embedded in our minds. It says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You'll reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap a harvest of destruction. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap a harvest of righteousness. There is a little bit of a law of action and consequence there, isn't there? But here's the thing, is that that scripture is not talking so much about the day-to-day actions and the day-to-day choices we make in our lives as followers of Christ. It's talking more in principle about life choices. Those who choose to follow God and sow to the Spirit are those who choose to reject God and sow to the flesh. But we often get that confused just because it's our style to do so. That's not how the gospel works. Still, The Bible does teach us that God disciplines the son he loves. So we know that the discipline of God on his people is a true true real thing. That God sometimes does discipline us to correct us, to deepen us, to move us. So we can't just take that and say, well, when things go bad, it's never the discipline of God. Because sometimes it might be. God disciplines the son he loves. But far more often, we find that God shows grace, mercy, patience, in love, in the middle of our failures, in the middle of sometimes even our willful sin, that God just continues to pour out His grace and mercy and goodness and love. So there's a balance there somewhere between the consequences to actions and the overriding grace of God. My point is this, that because of our culture and the way we're trained to think, we so often just assume if there's something going wrong, if we can figure out what we did wrong to cause that thing to go badly, we can fix it and get back on the right track. But God isn't always working that way. We're going to find out more about it. In fact, that reminds me of some of the pagan practices that you hear about, you know, from, from pagan cultures, like the volcanoes erupting. So they throw a virgin in the volcano to satisfy the god of the volcano, or the, the, uh, the, the, there was not enough rain, so we have to make these sacrifices. The gods are angry with us and not sending rain. Now, we're more sophisticated than that, right? And yet, so often, we, the, we think in the exact same way. There's something wrong. We did something wrong. Something's going wrong. We must have done something wrong. God is punishing us. If we can satisfy God, appease God somehow, then things will turn around and they'll go right. But that's not the gospel. We're still thinking that way. I have a good friend in Orlando. He's a pastor, a leader of a a denomination, an area of Florida for this denomination. He's a a seminary professor at a fine seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary, where I think uh, Brenton is uh, is enrolled. Uh, Great seminary. He's a professor there. His name's Justin Holcomb, an author. He's written some great books. He was talking the other day about when he was in Africa with his, his, his wife, and I think they have three kids, in Africa doing uh, some theological training for pastors in Africa. He got word that uh, one of his neighbors had noticed water coming out of their house, which is always a bad sign. A pipe had broke, and for three or four days their house had been entirely flooded. The whole house, well, you know what happens. And so he was saying his first thought, his first thought, and now this guy's in Africa teaching theology. It's not a comfortable situation to go to Africa and teach in some remote theological institute. More comfortable living in Orlando. He was there serving God. His first thought was, I, should, I didn't tithe as much as I should have. God is punishing me for not tithing. And then he, when he's telling the story, he, he said, I recognize immediately that's, that's not right. It's not consistent with the theology that I understand and believe. It was just my first thought because that's the way we, we often think. When things go wrong, we seem to assume we're doing bad. And then we make the opposite mistake too. When things go well, we're in the middle of good times, something good happens. It's natural for us to think, man, I'm doing great. God must be so happy with me. And he's blessing me in this wonderful way because we're so performance-oriented. But it's just, it's not, it's not often true, and it must break God's heart because it is an absolute violation to the doctrines of grace and justification. And when we insist on acting that way and thinking about God that way, it must break his heart. Galatians chapter 3, this same guy, Paul, who was sitting in prison for two years in Caesarea, says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Did you, not re- did you receive the Spirit by the work of the law or by faith? 
It's a rhetorical question. Did you receive the Spirit by the work of the law or your own good works or by faith? Well, obviously the answer is by faith, and the Galatians knew that. And then he said, having begun by the Spirit, are you being perfected by the flesh? Because what they were struggling with was they know they came to, to, to salvation through faith, but now they're trying to demand people do works in order to be right with God as Christians. And so he's explained to them that that's a, a grave mistake. Anyhow, as I was thinking about Paul and what he might have been thinking during those two years in prison, I, I thought of these couple of things that we do know about what Paul was thinking. One of the things was something that we have a record of that happened uh, when he was uh, in, in this ministry in prison, and it's very unusual. And it's something that I've never had happen. You probably haven't had either, but Paul had. In Acts 23, 11, it says that while he was in prison, one night the Lord came to him. Jesus came to Paul in prison and told him, Paul, just as you're serving me now here in this prison, you will also serve me in Rome. Okay, so Paul knew that. I think when, uh, when the Lord would come to you and speak to you directly, face to face, you're probably going to remember what he said. So Paul did have this during these two years in prison, wondering what's going on. He did have this, this knowledge that, that God is doing something here. He told me, he didn't tell me it was going to be two years, but he did tell me to hang on. But there was something else that Paul knew that you and I know too, and this is where I want to spend the rest of the time this morning. Paul, because he was a Pharisee, trained in the details of Scripture, in, in, in the Old Testament that, uh, that they would call Torah, he would know the things that were written in Torah. So one of the stories that he would be very familiar with would be the story of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? It's found in Acts, uh, sorry, in Genesis chapter 40 and 41, the part about Joseph's imprisonment. You don't need to turn there, but I, I just want to remind you of some things about that story of Joseph this morning, because I think this story of that guy, Joseph, who was unjustly charged, falsely accused, and, uh, and stuck in prison would probably be something that Paul would think a little bit about when he was sitting in prison for these two years. But let's think a little bit about Joseph. I don't think Vero Beach people could understand Joseph properly. And, uh, because I'm from Fort Pierce, and Vero Beach people are fancy, and Fort Pierce people are not. And uh, so Joseph was from a family of redneck ranchers. And you have to understand that to understand Joseph. Like, they were wealthy, but they were the, just these ranchers that lived out in the middle of nowhere, and they had their goats and their sheep and their cattle. And, uh, and, and Joseph was the 17-year-old golden boy, youngest son of the redneck rancher family. And he had a bunch of mean, corrupt, rowdy older brothers who were always causing trouble, and that was his life. And it sounds a lot like, uh, well, you Vero Beach people don't understand this stuff as well as I do, but you're welcome to come down any day and let's go have lunch at Moonswiner's Barbecue. And uh, it's not like, you know, your fancy places. I know in Vero Beach you have that new barbecue place. It's a Texas-style barbecue. You know, that, it's not like that. Moonswiner's is where the rednecks eat lunch. And it's a different cultural experience if you want to come down there. And we could go west on Okeechobee Road for a ways, experience some of the culture. We can swing by Big John's Feed Store and uh, maybe buy some boots and some uh, cinch jeans. There are things that you can do in Fort Pierce that you just can't do in Vero Beach. Well, I tell you that because this is the kind of family. I know Lincoln's back there. He's got his cowboy hat, but look at him. Stand up, Lincoln. He ain't no redneck. You know, he, that's not what we're talking about. And it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of wealth either because, uh, you know, in Fort Pierce, you've got wealthy rednecks who have an incredible amount of money invested in their diesel pickup truck with squatted in the back with the lights underneath and it's belching out smoke as they're rolling coal on your Prius. And, you know, that's, that's this culture. Okay. All right. That's fun to talk about. But the point is this, that's, we got to understand that's kind of like the family that Joseph was from. And he was the 17-year-old golden boy who was too spoiled by his dad, treated too well, and his brothers hated him because of that. And we know that from the Scripture, right? This is not speculation. This is what we know from the Scripture. And so this is the guy who his brothers hated him so much, they threw him in that pit because they were jealous of how the dad treated him. And then they sold him into slavery to this band of gypsies that were driving by. And then they, he ended up in Potiphar's house. 
and, uh, and was Potiphar's head servant. But you know, we, that's where we think of Joseph as this guy because of the, we, we can tell that he was very skilled in his ability to run Potiphar's house. And, uh, and he was promoted and he did all these things. But we forget that he was a 17-year-old redneck boy who was from this ranch out in the middle of nowhere. He had no possible way to know how to run Potiphar's house except the Bible says that God was with him and blessed the work of his hands and everything he touched prospered. That was the work of God. Amen. That wasn't the work of Joseph. Okay, we, so don't be misled about who Joseph was. So Joseph is in Potiphar's house, and then the naughty lady, Potiphar's wife, tries to lure him into bed. He doesn't go for it. He accuses, she accuses him of rape. He ends up in, the, in jail, and there he is, falsely accused. Do you think Paul would have thought a little bit about that? When he was sitting in Caesarea for two years, I think so. Some other things that we know about uh, about Joseph that I'm sure Paul would have thought about that God prospered whatever his hand touched. God is with him. In chapter 39 and verse 21, it says that God showed Joseph steadfast love. That's documented in Scripture. Paul would have known that. that we sang about that this morning. As we were going through this worship time this morning, I was sort of wishing that we sang all those songs after the message instead of before because they apply so perfectly to all that we're talking about in here this morning. The steadfast love of God. We, we know that, and Paul would have known, that God gave Joseph favor in the eyes of the prison keeper once he was in prison. And he ends up running the whole prison. And then when these two guys, the, the king's uh, cupbearer, and the king's chief baker were put in prison. They were treated like VIPs. It's kind of just a little part of a sentence in there where you see that they put these two guys not into the prison, but into the prison keeper's home. And then Joseph was moved into the prison keeper's home to kind of give them VIP prisoner treatment. He was like their personal concierge. So think of these two guys, the cup bearer and the baker. I'm going somewhere with this, so hang with me. The cup, baker, the cup bearer and the baker, and Joseph was with them, the Bible just says, for some time in the prison keeper's home taking care of them. Imagine the influence that they would have had on him, the things that he would have learned. Because this wasn't just like a cook from the kitchen and a baker. This was the cup bearer. This is like the executive chef for the castle. You know, this is, this is the top guy. This is like the maitre d'. And then the, the same with the, the, ba the head baker is like the executive baker. For, if you ever watch the Food Network, you see these people who are executive chef at this or that. And they used to cook, you know, back when they were young, but now they just boss people around and make up recipes. These are the refined people of the castle. And now they're with Joseph, and Joseph is learning from them. You see the significance of that? Because we know where Joseph is heading. Joseph ends up with the dreams and being let out of prison. And this guy. Uh, so Joseph was suddenly in a training course in prison with taking care of the, the head chef and the head baker, uh, learning things that he would need to know later in his life when he's running the entire kingdom. And when God uses him to basically save the entire world from the famine that's coming on them. You, you see where I'm going? You, you get that? Okay. So Paul would have known this. So Paul had the encouragement of knowing that Jesus himself came and spoke to him and said, Paul, just like you're serving me here in this prison, you're going to serve me in Rome. And then Paul also would have known from the scriptures, and I, I just bet that he would have clung to this story of Joseph and how God was preparing him and using him during this time in prison. It wasn't because God was mad at Joseph. There's no evidence of anything like that. Joseph hadn't done anything wrong. It's because God had a plan, and he was carrying it out in Joseph's life and preparing him for the work that he had him to do. And Paul might have been able to translate that to his own situation as well and know, I need to trust God. God is doing something. I may not like it much. But God is doing something. God sometimes uses pain to refine us. And it's never pleasant. But it is effective. Being diligent as a follower of Christ 
following him carefully does not mean we're going to live lives that are free of pain, does it? It doesn't mean that we're not going to have times of trouble. Possibly extensive times of extreme pain, of anguish. C.S. Lewis wrote a book about uh, this. It's called The Problem of Pain. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to find it and read it because he's dealing expertly with something that he knew a lot about and that is always part of our lives. But he said this in that book. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. He shouts to us through our pain. He also said that pain is the megaphone that God uses to speak to a deaf world. God uses pain. And when we come across people who have experienced tremendous pain, we should pay attention. When I say people, I mean followers of Christ. When you come across a follower of Christ whose story is a story of pain and anguish, you should sit at their feet and listen to what they have to say. We're going to have that opportunity in January. January 15th, we've uh, set aside a, a weekend for our missions weekend. And we have a couple of missionaries who we support. They're part of the Ministry of Bureau Bible Fellowship Church that we send them money uh, to fund their ministries. So really, we are part of supporting and helping them do this. They're going to come, a couple of these guys, and speak to us on January 15th. Mark it on your calendar. You want to be here. One of these guys is named Okongo Sampson. Uh, I met Okongo several years ago. I'd heard his story before I met him. And uh, he was born and raised in Kenya. And uh, he came to faith in Christ as a teenager through some extremely difficult circumstances. I won't go into detail, but he was captured by an army, as made into a, not just a child soldier, but a, a sex slave to the soldiers, and uh, eventually escaped, was filled with such shame because of his experience. After that, uh, came to faith in Christ through the work of a missionary, and, uh, and then started to become educated. He ended up going actually to the UK, went to seminary and uh, became a a medical doctor, went back to Africa as an evangelist. And so he would find his way into some of the most difficult places on earth uh, and preach the gospel. In fact, he went back to his captors to preach the gospel to them. In one of these uh, adventures, it wasn't that particular one, uh, where he was in a closed country preaching the gospel, he and the seven people he was with were arrested put in prison, then brought out to be executed. So he was with seven other people. They were forced to kneel down, told to recant of their faith, and when they did not, one by one, their heads were cut off. So the seven companions next to Okongo all had their heads cut off. They got to Okongo knowing he was about to be executed. He looked up and he praised God. He said, "I'm, I'm about to be with you. And it made the captors so angry that they decided not to uh, cut his head off. And and instead, they took him back into the prison, drove a steel rod through his calves, and hung him upside down. That's just one story from this guy, Okongo. Man, I love to talk to this man. And he he is many, I don't know, how. I think it's like six, seven, eight times, he's been arrested for preaching the gospel in closed places, under the threat of death, and several times was scheduled to be executed, and yet he's going to be here, Lord willing, on January 15th to speak to us. You'll want to hear Okongo and meet this happy, wonderful, gracious soldier of God. This guy has learned a few things about pain. There's someone else that's going to be here with us in January. His name is uh, Isaac Shaw. He's the president of the Delhi Bible Institute, an entirely different situation. Isaac's work is to train theologians, pastors, missionaries in North Africa and the northern part of Africa and the jungle where there's extreme persecution. And he sends these people out uh, as missionaries all around North Africa. And many of them have been uh, martyred for their preaching and their faith. Uh, Isaac himself and his wife have had to go into hiding different times because they are under threat of uh, execution. He's going to be here to talk to us in January as well. You want to hear these guys. One of the things that Isaac said when I was talking to him last year, he was talking about persecution. He told me that the work of the Delhi Bible Institute is so important because these were his words. Proper theology is the steel 
that upholds a believer who's facing persecution. Proper theology. Not just some connection with God or some thoughts about who we think God might be or how God might treat us or act in certain situations. Proper theology is the steel that upholds a believer who's facing persecution. Friends, this is why this is so vital, that we understand the teaching of the Word of God, that we pay attention to who God is, how God was interacting with people like Joseph and like Paul who were going through the extended times of difficulty and suffering and persecution. There's no room for diagnosing your standing with God based on your circumstances. In other words, there's no room for saying, well, things are going good, so God must be extra happy with me and blessing me today. God is, I'm sure, happy with you if you're his child. And he is blessing you every day, but it has very little to do with your good performance as a Christian. And it's wrong for us to say things are just not going right, so I must have done something wrong. My house flooded, so maybe I didn't give enough tithe to the church. It's all my fault. God doesn't act that way. We can't expect that of God. But there is room for this. Anytime difficulties face, I don't, maybe even more so, we're in the middle of good times. We should be doing what the psalmist did. Praying, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the everlasting ways. That should be our constant prayer. In good times or in bad times, we should be asking God to search our hearts. And when we find some thing that he exposes to us that we need to deal with in our life, we should deal with it quickly, understanding the grace and the compassion and the love of this God that we serve, counting on his forgiveness, on his cleansing, and not struggle carrying around things in our lives that we know we need to let go of. Not so our lives can go better, but because we're worshipers of the gracious God who allows us to do this. Psalm 16, that was read for us this morning, at the end of that, says, I've set the Lord always before me, therefore my heart rejoices, my flesh dwells secure. Friends, we need to have our theology straight and understand the true nature of the true God and not the cultural assumptions that we can make that we place upon him that are incorrect. There's something else as we close that I, I really need to touch on, and that is this, that if you are not a follower of Christ, if you have not come to Christ asking for forgiveness of your sin and for him to make you his child, I'm afraid this doesn't apply to you. There's this sort of assumption that we get in our secular culture in America that we're all God's children and God is just smiling on all of us and you know what it's not exactly true the Bible tells us in 2nd Corinthians or sorry 1st Corinthians chapter 15 verses 7 and 8 it says as many as believed him he made them the children of God even to those who called on his name it doesn't say that there's this blanket benefit for all of mankind because they were made by God and therefore God has his love for them. He's going to take care of them. There's the opposite. There's the children of God and there are those who have rejected him. And even if they haven't made a decision to reject him, they have made a decision not to receive him. Greg talked eloquently about that last week. And those people are in danger. And those people don't have the benefit of being able to say during difficult times, I trust God, he's doing something in my life, and I know it's going to be okay. Instead, if they're thinking right, they need to say, I want to come to God, confess my sin, ask him to make me his child so I can be one of these people who he's protecting, protecting and caring for. And even times of danger, even up to death and persecution, God is with them doing his work. That's what we need to be. So let your proper, correct theology rule. And friends, remember, it's our work to trust God. He's doing something. Look at what he did 
in Joseph's life during those two years in prison. We find this redneck rancher boy who was 17 years old who had probably no marketable skills except to wear a colorful coat nicely and ended up being the one who's ruling the entire Egyptian kingdom, the most advanced kingdom in the world at that time and doing it successfully and saving Israel. And then, and then go back to Paul. Like Paul knew that about Joseph. Paul didn't know how Paul's story ended, but I do. You see what happened with Paul? We know about Paul's conversion, that dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. And then after that, these stories that Greg has been teaching us faithfully week after week of Paul's missionary journeys. And he says, just like he was a firebrand Pharisee who was out there persecuting the Christians, now he's a firebrand evangelist going out there just preaching the gospel and getting beat for it and going from one city to the next, preaching the gospel faithfully. Who did Paul end up being? He ended up being this wise theologian who understood the complex doctrines and wrote these epistles. You know, the Paul that we saw in Acts chapter 15 wouldn't have been able to write the book of Hebrews. He wouldn't have known enough to write the book of Romans. He wouldn't have known what to write to Timothy. It took those years in prison. That's why we don't find any epistles that Paul wrote during those two years. He was at the beginning of his theological training, communion with God, understanding this God through difficult times, so he could write the inspired words of God that are scripture to us today. And God was doing that during those two years in Caesarea, and then during those two years and more when he was imprisoned in Rome. You see the point? What God did in Joseph's life, what God did in Paul's life. What's God doing in your life? This morning as we close, if you would like to pray, I'd like to invite you to do this. I'm not asking you to, but I'd like you to seriously consider if this would be an appropriate time for you to come up here this morning and either pray alone or pray with one of our elders or prayer partners, specifically about one of these two things, to say, I recognize that I need to be right with God there's someone who will meet you up here and will show you from God's word how you can come to faith in Christ and become God's child. Or if this morning you're recognizing that you're holding on to things, stresses, and your view of God is not right and you need to commit once again to a proper view of theology, come up here and let's pray and ask God to do that work in you and let some things go. And as we close this morning, if you would like to do that, we have people here who would be very pleased to pray with you. Father, Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Father, thank you that even this guy, Paul, and some of his later work wrote these words. The things that were written in the past were for our instruction that we might have encouragement and hope. God, may we look frequently back to the scriptures that were written in the past and find that encouragement and hope that we need in our lives day to day. Relying on you in times of difficulty, celebrating you in times of success, knowing that either way, we're just fallen people in a fallen world, redeemed by the almighty power of God and through the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, may our hearts be grateful for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.